everybody, and welcome to Writing the Rapids, the show where I talk to writers about writing. Very often those writers were recommended to me by the writers who have previously been on the show. Before I get into the interview with this month's participant, Zach Smith, I'll remind you that you can help the show out by sending a one-time donation to paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe, or a recurring monthly donation at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. There you'll get things like early podcast episodes, pieces of flash fiction, maybe a novella or two that nobody else will get, maybe even more. Zach Smith is a writer, poet from Boston, Massachusetts. He's most recently published the book of poetry called 50 Barn Poems, out now on Clash Books. His other writing has appeared in places like Wigleaf, Maudlin House, X-Ray Lit, and more. You can find him on Twitter at Zach the Linguist. So without further ado, let's get right into it. I think the most pressing question and really the only rational place to start is why Barnes? <laughs> uh, you know, you're the first person to ask me that. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> that's a reasonable question. Um, so I think primarily, I mean, it's, it's sort of tied to the genesis of the book where it came out of, uh, the idea sort of came out of a like a group chat I was in with some other writers, and um, I forget exactly what we were riffing on, but I wrote what would become the um, locus for one of the barn poems in the book, and um, Mike Andrelzik was in the chat. He's a poet, he writes a lot of haiku. Um, Haboon and stuff, and he was like sort of flippantly. I think he was like, "You could write forty nine more of those, and you could have a book." <laughs> um, and I was, it was, it sort of got in my brain because I was at the right moment where I had sort of been thinking more seriously about um, trying to make a poetry book, and it felt like just a good uh, uh, sort of like goal or project idea as anything, and so. Um, I got inspired by that, I guess, and then leaned into it, and I was pretty happy with how it was shaping up in the result. So once I started working on it more, it sort of uh, acted as this like image that I got really interested in um, from all different angles, which I think sort of get reflected in the different poems, because uh, I don't have too much of like a real personal relationship with barns or any one barn. Um, I don't live on a farm. I didn't grow up on a farm or anything um but i think in a lot of ways like that's the kind of image that i like the most to think about for some poetry for poetry in a sense is that if you know a lot about something it's easy to get stuck in your own head about it Hmm. um and you end up like tripping over what you want to say or can say or if you're speaking from authority you feel like some sort of obligation or something. And I think maybe that's the reasoning behind a, like a lot of cliches in poetry, like writing about the moon or water or something, because we don't, they're kind of mysterious in a way, but you can have this experience with them or interaction with them. So I, the barn sort of became that for me. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I, I've said on this show, and really anytime poetry comes up, that the poetry that in my adult life really connected with the most was kind of old white guy Midwestern poetry. And it's yeah. funny to read barn poems coming from that place <laughs> because it's like not uh, that. You know, the. Like it would be, but then it's not. I guess, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's interesting. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, so, somebody who's like, it's almost like, you know, the the progression from Black Sabbath to, to death metal. You know, it's like, I don't understand how we got from there to here, but I really enjoy it. What's your, what kind of poetry do you read? Oh, sorry, you cut out for a second. What's that? Oh, what kind of poetry do you read? Oh, um, uh, not a lot, mm. <laughs> if I'm being totally honest. Um, I, I think that's because, like, with a lot of people I've talked to since it's come out especially, like, 
a lot of poetry is that's marketed to people is kind of impenetrable in a lot of ways hmm. and especially from like high school or whenever you know reading these like long highly structured symbolic sort of like abstract pieces that i think it's easy to get turned off of that um and i still think a lot of contemporary poetry is like that in a lot of ways um which is fine i think there's a reason like people like it and enjoy it and read it um but it never really gripped me too much so um i guess that sort of ties into like you know i had um since originally finding him i'd really like sam's uh, sam pink's writing mm -hmm. um and you know he does especially his early stuff like the um i'm gonna kill uh clone myself and kill a clone and eat it like a lot of the pieces are this sort of hybrid between poem and really short story um so i think like finding his writing and some like alt lit stuff online from back in the day like Taolin has a poem called hot amoeba ass um <laughs> which I thought was a really funny poem when I first found it. And I still think it's really funny, uh, if only for the name. Um, and so, like, uh, just reading more, like, I got more seriously into reading and writing just a few years ago because I had been in grad school for a long time, and that sort of crushed all the creative energy I had. So I didn't, like, read books for fun, and I didn't write or anything. And then um, once I got out of that, I started digging into more and finding stuff that, like, sort of satisfied what I uh, I think I was looking for in poetry. So Sam Pink's 99 um, poems on Clash. And I remember reading that and talking to Kevin Gonzalez, um, who runs Back Patio and has this book, uh, you know, you're nodding your head, but yeah. yeah. Everyone knows Kevin. <laughs> um, I remember talking to him after reading it. I think we read it around the same time. We we're both like, man, we should write poetry because like this kicks ass. and it like sort of opened up the door um, for us, I think. And similarly, uh, Joey Grantham's Tom Sawyer um, has a really uh, unique, casual, short, sort of simple um, uh, style to it that was really appealing to me. Hmm. So I would sort of cite those two books as telling me like, hey, you could, um, this is, there's the kind of poetry that you think you could write like exists and um, like it's not beyond the realm of possibility to write something sort of like that, as opposed to thinking that poetry has to be sonnets or, you know, stuff with weird spacing or sure. whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. But to be honest, like I don't read too much poetry or I didn't before. Um, I've been reading more now and like finding more stuff to fill that. I think like uh, I've enjoyed everything I've read on bottle cap press for instance, um, I have a few different books from them and uh, like Daniel Bailey, who did the drunk sonnets, which are like, uh, I guess, technically sonnets, but they don't feel like sonnets. <laughs> um, you know, that kind of stuff, like, you know, Internet writing and more mm -hmm. experimental alternative stuff. Yeah. Um, one of the things you said was that going to school kind of crushed all your creative energy and you didn't read for a while. And I feel like that's kind of the case for uh, at least a couple of writers I know and me and probably a lot more people who are working these days. Mm -hmm. And I find that that's super interesting because I remember reading in school about writers when I was like elementary school, middle school age. It's like, this person was a voracious reader. They read everything they could get their hands on. They were reading instruction manuals for lawnmowers because that's what they had to read. And that's, like, not the case these days, at least in this sort of ecosystem. And I find that to be a really uh, strange turn of events. Yeah, I feel like that, in a way, I still feel like that's kind of true. Like, I'm sure it's not really true, but I feel like on social media, it's easy to feel like you see everyone posting what they're reading and their book recommendations and all this stuff. And it just feels like, man, I'm so far behind. Like, I'm not reading as much as everyone else and. I'm not as well read and all that stuff. And like, I mean, it's a valid question, like what that even means for being a writer. Like, I don't know. Um, I think if you insist on reading everything before you wrote, like, right, you'd never write anything. Like, mm -hmm. you, 
you have to stop at some point to take some time for yourself. But yeah, I also think like I mean, grad school is more common now, and in a lot of ways, I think it's more demanding. I mean, just within the past like twenty years, you know, I think like if you go to grad school, or especially if you do a PhD, like your advisor is probably someone who got their degree in the seventies, back mm. when. Um, you know, only like four people were applying for 20 jobs and they got the first job they applied for. And, um, you know, it, it took them like 10 years to write their dissertation and they've taught the whole time and all this stuff. But now it's like most PhD programs that have funding are cutting them down to like five years or fewer. You know, you have to be finished quicker than ever. The competition's higher. You have to be on more. Um, and with anything, like with any normal job too, or most jobs, I think, like, especially white collar jobs, like with email and messengers and stuff like the internet, you are expected to be online more and more productive. Like there's less downtime, I think as a whole than in like, obviously, you know, Ernest Hemingway's <laughs> time or something yeah. when he could just sit in a cafe and write and read all day. Like we don't have that. So I think grad school is like a really intense version of that where, and also part of it, like your job in grad school is to read anyway. So you are reading, like I read a lot, but I didn't enjoy it. And almost any of it and you write a lot but it's not um you know i i can't say that like academic writing is fun i i wouldn't really believe anyone who says that like it's you have to conform to these styles and you have to say these things you have to appease your committee and all this crap um so yeah but yeah like i'm not surprised i think that's pretty common i mean when i was like i didn't know anyone in my department who really had any creative pursuits besides like someone who is a dancer mm. and um, stuff like that. I mean, it's like really isolating. It, it sucks all of your mental energy out. Yeah. I, so. I had a friend who, or a coworker friend who had, uh, ha has an MFA and he was giving me some of the books that he read uh, mm. while in that program. And he's like, this is the kind of writing that, this particular program is looking into and i read them and i just hated them <laughs> i was just like oh this is an interesting like it's so, you know like some of them were artsy there was a collection where it's just like a bunch of just different characters and everything's kind of the same um mm -hmm. length and all the pages look the same like it, it kind of looked like something i would enjoy reading it kind of looked like something from early inside the castle or something like that and it just like read like something out of the 1800s that just didn't appeal to me at all and he he gave me some of the work of some of his friends who had graduated and went off to publish in like the paris review or whatever and like every single piece had the word uh, filament in it and just, <laughs> <laughs> just yeah it, it sort of crushed my desire to do it like i want to do it because i think i would enjoy teaching but I guess there's also YouTube, so I could just start making YouTube videos and. Well, I mean that's the thing. Like, and I've talked to a lot of people about this. So, like, I don't have an MFA. I was doing a PhD in linguistics, mm. um, which, in a lot of ways, like I'm, I am thankful for that it wasn't a creative degree. Like, uh, in in some ways, because like, I don't know, it kept like I'd be really sad. I think if my, the thing I burned out on was create like a creative venture. You know, like I can't imagine doing a PhD in poetry and ending up feeling the same way I felt about a PhD in linguistics because then I would never write poems again. Like, yeah, that's really sad. <laughs> I think I, I feel bad for anyone has to deal with that. But even then, like, um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, so I guess there's the two things. One is like, what's this MFA culture? I think everyone that you talk to on your podcast and talk to online, like, has a pretty similar feeling about it. But you bring up the point about like, Part of everyone and everyone I talk to, you know, the captain and other people are like, oh, I, should I go do an MFA? Like, I just want to teach. I think it'd be great to talk about books all day and I want to help people and I want to teach people how to write and learn how to write and all this stuff. And it's like, that's how they get you. That's the, mm -hmm. I don't know, teach. teaching kicks ass. It's the best part of any, like, that's why, but that's because the supply is so high. That's why everyone's just like an adjunct making mm. minimum wage with no benefits because they'll accept that because they have the motivation to teach and teaching is like not worth anything in our society basically um you know professorships are 
locked down. They're closing tenure lines. Uh, everyone's like a lecturer or a postdoc for years and years. And the the market, everyone competes with each other. Like, yeah, it's, it's really frustrating. And I think if you want to teach, like, by all means, pursue it. But I think high school is probably better. I mean, I taught as part of my program. I was a TA, and, or I would teach my own classes. And I had one class where I taught just first-year students. And, like, what's the difference between a first-year college student and a high school senior? Like, a summer of like drinking or something like yeah. it, they're the same kids so you can still have that same impact <laughs> or probably a better impact and yeah everyone likes to teach as they should because teaching is great it just sucks that that's the mfa system that we have mm-hmm. yeah you, i you suggested high schoolers and certainly i had a couple lit teachers in high school who inspired me in one way or another but man do i hate kids <laughs> Like, yeah, I can't, oh. Like, you have to work your way up. I think if you become a high school teacher now, like, they just put you in front of the freshman or something. Yeah. You're going to have to cut your teeth on it. But, but also, like, you get a lot of freedom. Like, I mean, college programs are supposed to be more demanding. You have to read a lot more, blah, blah, blah. But in high school, like, I remember we only had so many required reading books. I probably didn't like them. I mean, I, did, I definitely didn't like most of them at the time. In retrospect, I probably still wouldn't like them. But I still had a lot of freedom to read other books, and I had teachers that encouraged me to. Like, I read a lot in high school, but I didn't have to. And my teachers were still available to talk to me about them and recommend them. Hmm. I feel like, I don't know, I, I don't remember having that same experience in college, but I only took a couple. I only took like one creative writing class and one literature class, I think, in college, and they didn't really stick to me too much. But I don't know, I, I think people under undervalue high school teaching maybe more relative to college teaching. Probably. I, I might be way off. I don't I haven't taught high school. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's hard to say. I I would imagine, but I don't know. Living in Michigan like ten years ago it became a right to work state, so all the teachers unions sort of got crippled and right around then is when I got out of the public school system as a student. So I, I really have no bearing on what it's like anymore. I just imagine it's all fidget spinners and TikTok dances and <laughs> slang. I no longer understand. I mean, it's like, I just assume it's all the same. I mean, like trends, popular culture stuff changes. Sure. But like, I don't know you, at the end of the day, you go in, like they're still teaching Wuthering Heights they're still teaching a separate piece. Like, that's not going to change. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will say my, my senior year, my English class, we read All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy, and that was maybe the one of the most formidable experiences yeah. in school at all. It's just like, oh, my God, this guy doesn't use punctuation. You can do that and we'll still publish your work. Yeah, I mean, I think, so, like, I don't know, it's, it's easy for me to shit talk uh like people that i don't know anything about but like it feels like it's it'd be so easy to get kids so much more excited about literature just by having like i don't know a one month unit sometime in high school about contemporary publishing that's not like the jonathan saffron forwards and the whatever of the world I mean, especially because in our little bubble of indie lit like i know it's a it's a distribution and promotion problem like most high school teachers don't know about Sam Pink, but like you could read one of his books in a, in like two days, you know, if you're a high school, you could read it over the weekend. It could change your shit forever. Yeah. Like I think it'd be so worth it to so many people because I, I think about this a lot, but like, I don't know about you maybe, but like when I was in high school, I was a hipster who liked contemporary indie music and I liked watching weird movies and all that shit. But then when it came to books, I thought, the indie culture was like Chuck Palahniuk and mm. you know other people on like Penguin or Vintage or something and not like truly independent literature as it would be with independent music right like you know I would go see local bands and I would see bands on small labels and buy records and stuff but I wasn't doing that with books and it's like my question for myself is why wasn't that the case like what's the barrier there where's the disconnect and I think about that a lot because it could be you know, like everyone's got who's really into music has some experience where they listen to something for the first time that is sort of off the the 
beaten path and it like changes things for them. And I feel like most people don't have that relationship with books, um, which is frustrating because it's so close, you know? Yeah, I agree. I I think it's right there. It It is. Yeah. In, in high school, the stuff I read for fun was just like high fantasy stuff because that's what my dad (laughs) my dad would read that to us my brother and i when we were in like elementary school and he'd kind of skip over the gory parts and like that was like the comfort before bed sort of (laughs) ritual that i expanded into but one of the issues and i guess sam pink is sort of a way around that but i was i've been reading just more of like the darker experimental stuff and I, i really like it you know, I really like everything on Inside the Castle. I think that's pretty obvious to anyone who listens to the show. But, like, I can't imagine my, like, 10-year-old kid in the future pulling, um, you know, like, clog off of the shelf and saying, Hey, Dad, can I read this book? <laughs> like, okay, but, like, maybe, you know, yeah. like, grabbing Left Hand by Paul Karen and being like, Hey, this looks interesting. I'd like to read it. The format's, you know, not what I've seen before. And it's like, oh, I don't know, man. It's all about, like fisting and heroin and stuff (laughs) yeah and i get that but i also like i don't know i feel like that's always i feel like that's still available for a lot of people like i have really distinct memories like i remember reading kurt vonnegut when i was in like eighth grade because my brother recommended them and then discovered i think in our basement that my dad had some old kurt vonnegut books like a copy of mother night and breakfast of champions and stuff like that and you know, I mean, eighth grade isn't 10, but it's closer to 10 than like 20, right? Sure. Like I was 13, 14, 15, and I'm reading like this book written by a socialist who, who talks about prostitutes putting drugs in their buttholes. Like, it's not super graphic in the prose itself, but he drew a butthole and it's like a famous drawing. It's just in the <laughs> book. Like, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I think kids are pretty, and that's still, like, it didn't scar me or ruin me. I remember, yeah, similarly finding some fantasy book on my brother's shelf and reading it, and I was like, oh, man, this is really horny. This is pretty cool. Yeah. Like, it's probably for the best, right? Like, maybe if your 10-year-old kid does read about fisting and some book on your shelf, they'll be like, hell, yeah, books are cool. <laughs> That's true. I mean, we still got people trying to ban uh, To Kill a Mockingbird in public school, though, so we're, we're yeah. a long way off from... Uh... Do you, I mean, do you think that's going to change? No, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> but it's an interesting problem to have yeah no i mean i think it i think you have the right idea though it's like maybe this is what you were saying but I, people always talk about it as a parenting problem or whatever and it's about like you can only rely on the schools to do so much because they're mostly daycares by design they're just there to make sure your kid doesn't die yeah like, you know and learn how to maybe think critically about something. Yeah, it's so important, I think, to have books on your shelf for that. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, in our house, we have a bedroom that's just a library. It's just books everywhere. So I imagine if we ever do have kids uh, before the world ends, that it probably won't be a big issue yeah. to, to get them excited. Yeah, I mean, kids pick up on, I mean, when they're young, kids are, they think you're the coolest thing, I think, because they don't have anything else to benchmark you on yeah (laughs) there something that you said earlier is sticking in my head you were talking about feeling not well read and feeling like seeing everybody on the internet i have this feeling that i kind of perceive everybody that i follow on twitter to sort of just be different facets of the same personality like it's just (laughs) me and one person on the other side of the screen and i feel like that might be a something that needs to be overcome by a lot of people. I feel like secretly that that's probably something that a lot of people feel. Um, and this is like a social media problem sort of at large, but this idea that everybody has read every book on, uh, you know, soft skull press, except for me and like, Oh my God, I gotta, I gotta read all these things now. Um, or like, this feeling that everybody knows everybody just because I see three people have sort of a running conversation in my Twitter feed. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of that's like 
I, I agree with you partially. And I think some of that is like true though, unfortunately, like I, there are people like Troy James Weaver, who I'm convinced has read uh, like a factor of 10 more books than I have or something crazy. Like let's say I've read a thousand books in my life. I think Troy has read like 10,000 or 20,000. I, I wouldn't doubt that at all. Like, and that's part of his, his story. And it was like a big saving for him as I understand it. Like, you know, I think it's true there that there are those people, but it's also, we suffer from this aggregate sense of like, yeah, he's read a lot of books that I haven't, but I've also read some books he hasn't, but then someone else has read more of the compliment to that set and someone else has read something else. And then like you scroll through your Twitter feed for 10 minutes and all of a sudden you have a reading list of like a hundred books. And it, yeah, like you're saying, you get the sense that like, because two of the people you follow have read one of those books and it feels like everyone has. But I mean, yeah. But on the other hand, for the for the thing about like friends and stuff, I do think that's accurate. Like I, I think there are lots of uh, friend groups, like reasonably so. I mean, I, I, Twitter, like as much as I'm on it, I, it's terrible for a lot of reasons because it's like being at a really big party. Yeah. yeah. If you think of like the scale of these things, like maybe like I follow hundred of the like, record labels or book presses or something. So maybe I follow like 200 unique people hmm. who are tweeting every day, their opinions and experiences. Like I've never been to a party with 200 people at it, let alone talk to everyone at a party, even smaller than that. So like, I don't think we're accustomed or used to, or even should be able to like, understand what that means to navigate that social space of like you're at a party with 200 people and you're having a conversation with 200 people and like um so it's only natural i think you know you go to a party or you have a friend group where there's gonna be someone in the kitchen and someone on the back deck and they're having their own they're bringing their own social groups to the party like i think that's inevitable but you're right like it it can feel like oh man they're buds yeah. <laughs> and i like them i want to be part of that <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting i have been noticing as i've sort of wormed my way into the writing world via this podcast that has anyone not wormed their way into it i oh, mean sure i mean a way to describe whatever anyone's doing yeah it's not necessarily a um uh, like an accusatory sort of verb it's just the way that it feels sure. that like Bef when I was in college and then I was reading about alt lit and it seemed like like a big party everybody's in this one big g chat with like 50 people in it and they're all sharing their stories and everything like that and then last month I talked to Sam Pink and he's just like I don't know I talked to like two people <laughs> yeah yeah I remember, yeah I remember that's yeah. it's crazy to me that I don't know, because it also seems like in publishing, even in publishing this small, you need connections to get stuff published. And I don't know, it's daunting, even in a t tiny world. Sure. Yeah, again, I think it's like this aggregate effect. Like, it's a, I mean, they call it a network for a reason, because it's like, um, even in my experience, like, I have some friends that I talk to like daily or whatever on Twitter or text or whatever, email. And I have some people that I have email correspondences with. And I have some people that I've been published in the same magazine or issue with. And I have some people that I've solicited for stories for something. And um, I have like people I know because we have the same publisher or because they are my publisher. And then I have people I know because I asked one of those people to get me in touch with someone in Seattle because I wanted to do a reading or whatever. And like your network grows that way. And then I think like once you overlay all of those, if you're like, oh yeah, this, like you're talking about out, uh, outlet or whatever. It's like, yeah. So Taolin published, you know, Megan Boyle and E.R. Kennedy and Brennan Scott Goral on New House or something. And, then, uh, I don't know, uh, Brandon Scott Goral did a book reading at some point with these three people. And one of those people did a book reading with that person. And that person runs this press. And at the end of it, yeah, it feels like this whole big community. But I don't think, like, anyone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm actually, speaking yeah. of Brandon Scott Goral, I'm actually, like, rereading his 
Moonhouse book right now, and there's this line that stuck out to me where he's like, I feel bad about not feeling interested in all of the blogs that my friends write <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> and so I think even back then, it's like there's this sheen of community, but people are still like, oh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to read his blog today. It's a, it's a fucking blog. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it has something to do with the Tumblr age, too. I don't know. Something about Tumblr makes things yeah. feel different. I was never on... T- Were you a big Tumblr person? I was never on Tumblr. Um, I mean, I had a Tumblr for a year or two, and I don't think I ever really made anything. I was yeah. more just consuming. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, th- I think... I don't think I'm able to say anything unique about social media. And it's interesting that, uh, that any conversation it feels like about publishing or writing is necessarily also about social media. Like we've gotten to an interesting point in history. (laughs) Yeah. So sort of hopping off of that, do you have an active desire to do writing full time? uh no okay yeah because i i feel like that's probably the case for a lot of people too and i remember when i talked to as coomer he mentioned that he didn't have a day job and like he does music as well he's in a couple bands and he writes books and that's it and he's like yeah i want to do this full time so i don't have a job and i write all day and it was it blew my mind that somebody in i think that was 2018 like was actively pursuing that rather than like finding themselves with that opportunity. Right. I mean, I, I understand it. Like, I don't, uh, I think there are people who want that to be the case for themselves and who even achieve it. And I don't begrudge anyone that like I it's for me, it's a personal thing. I think partially because maybe part of it was grad school because it's a, at least in my experience, the environment was your personal life and your social life and your professional life have all merged where all your friends are doing the same thing as you. And like your, it's your job and your job is to learn how to get another job. And like, you're expected to be engaged in the community and like tutor people or do workshops or go to conferences and socialize with other people doing what you're doing. Like it felt like that. And I think it's really easy to get to this scenario where if you don't like uh, some fundamental aspect of it, then your whole life sort of collapses. So like, and this is completely separate from the idea of sustainability. Like it's, I feel like it's almost impossible now to be confident that you can have a sustained music career that will get you from the age of 18 to like 70 or something. Right. Like, yeah, I it's, it doesn't feel structured that way anymore. Um, like even your most, like, I don't know. That's like a tangent I get into about like more independent stuff anyway. Like what is, what does the guy from my bloody Valentine do day to day? He's put out like four records since like 1983. Yeah, I don't know where his money comes from. <laughs> I don't know what he does. I think he does music production. I think sometimes he goes on tour. But like, yeah, I don't know. Um, well, he's married to the the bassist from Mindless Self Indulgence, so oh, really? probably not. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay. The bassist married Gerard Way back in the day. Oh, oh, oh! You're talking about My Chemical Romance. Oh, yeah. what did you say? Oh, you said My Bloody Valentine. Uh oh. Oh man! At least we're not talking about Bullet for My Valentine, right? Yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're talking about uh, what's his name, Kevin Shields? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like it's a weird thing to think about, and so it sounds scary, basically. And I think maybe because I was close to having that experience, where like I hated what I was doing, I wasn't going to be successful at it, I wasn't making any money. The idea of putting all your eggs into that basket is, from a practical standpoint, like. Yeah, so I think it's reasonable. I think a lot of people, like you said, like because maybe of our generation, like recession after recession, gig economy, like class exploitation, like having a like you're more in survival mode. It's like I really want to have a nine to five so that I can continue to eat and then secure for myself time to write or make music or something. Yeah. But yeah, more power to people who want to do that. And I just like yeah, I don't begrudge anyone that. I think that's great. And I think some people do it, but then like 
in publishing especially it sounds terrifying because like the whole payment structure is like advances that you have to earn out and then royalties that can vary depending on whatever mm-hmm. and like contracts that you can't fulfill i don't know it just seems really fucking stressful i'd rather just like clock in and out and then turn my creative brain on at 5 30 or something yeah absolutely yeah i'm in that same sort of thing where i feel like if i were given the opportunity to do that if i had a novel that hit it big and then i got you know a two hundred thousand dollar advance like john scalzi or something stupid and i'd be like oh yeah okay i'll tell my radio people where they can stick it and i'll sit at home and type all day but i feel like to do it you have to be obsessed and i feel that way with you know higher education like getting a phd like i feel like if i wanted to quit my job and become a writer i would have to want to write for 12 hours a day and right. I don't find myself wanting to write for 12 hours a day. I find myself wanting to write for an hour or two and then maybe having little ideas throughout the day after that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah, I feel that way. But then also I get self-conscious. Like, I'm sure there are people listening who are like, oh, these fucking, <laughs> fucking idiots. Like, they're not, they don't have the passion. They're not reading all day. Like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be doing writing. Maybe we shouldn't be making art. We're not the artists, you know. And maybe not. coaching. Are we just uh, tourists? Yeah, that's the thing. I, I was recently watching a bunch of old Harlan Ellison interviews, and he's like, you know, there's people who sob about how hard writing is, and I'm glad it's hard for them because they shouldn't be writing. <laughs> you know, like, I moved to New York and started writing. I sold two stories the first year and 103 the second year. And from then, it was just writing. And I'm like, oh, that's great. You know, I'm, I'm really happy for you. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I would agree with the... I fucking hate people who are just like, ah, oh, writing. It's so hard. I hate my book that I'm writing. Well, stop writing your fucking book. Yeah. Like, if you hate it so much, don't do it. You're gonna you're gonna live to be like seventy, maybe. Like, it's fine if you hate your job or you you have like a shitty situation where you can't escape that. Like, it's fine if you hate your town or you hate your job, but you have to deal with it. But like, if you're writing for fun, you fucking hate it. Don't write. Stop it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't get. That. It's all over. I feel like it's all over Twitter too. And but maybe it's because Twitter's like, this is the other thing I think about a lot that Twitter's designed to be like a, um, an, like a, an anger engine. Like anything that goes mm. viral goes viral because it pisses a lot of people off. And like the quote te- the quote tweet system seems designed to just, like the dunking thing is designed. Like everyone thinks they're being clever or like signaling. Oh, look at this idiot or whatever but like that's how you like they count those as engagements and that's how twitter's like saying it's successful and it's just pissing people off and it's like by design so maybe that's why I'm, you see it more on twitter is because other people get pissed off and then talk about it i don't know <laughs> yeah well and you know you see the platform used for one thing and your brain just automatically says oh that's what that platform is for right <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I catch myself doing that an awful lot is opening up Twitter thinking, oh, you know, I haven't tweeted in a couple days. I should tweet. And then not thinking of anything to tweet except for some sort of like quippy, sarcastic or complaint or something. Yeah. I mean, it's really easy too, especially like as it feeds into itself. If like all you see is some stupid hot take about writing prompts, like your gut <laughs> reaction is to want to talk about it. Yeah. And susceptible to it. I try not to be. I try to just do the kind of tweeting I want to see um, on Twitter. And it, it sounds, I hate how much I talk about Twitter when I talk about writing, but I guess it's inevitable. But yeah. like, do you think, like, so you talk about, oh yeah, this obligation to tweet. It's like, I want to be the kind of Twitter user that I want to follow myself. So I don't retweet too much stuff. I don't try to tweet things that I'm, because I'm mad or trying to like be clever about something. And I try to tweet with some amount of frequency. I try not to be too self-promotional. I don't know. This sucks. This is this is bad audio. People are going to hate me by then. <laughs> no, this is relatable. The stuff that people think is bad is the stuff that people love the most. If, <laughs> if I've learned anything about podcasting in the 12 <laughs> years I've known about podcasting, it's 
that the worst audio is the best audio it's, it's the complete opposite from radio and that's why like i heart media is never going to really win at podcasting because i don't understand Ooh. you know having having like the long form journalism from npr is great um and you know i listened to s town twice once with just by myself and then once with my wife which i've never done with any sort of audio anything before with another person but like beyond that like there's so many of those like investigatory podcasts now that i don't know i don't need it i don't need to know about the secret life of siegfried and roy i don't care you know like like s-town and then the other one the one that preceded that from npr the adnan saeed i forget what it was even called yeah that i didn't even listen to either like i like that every once in a while but yeah so much of that I mean, yeah. so much of podcasting is forced anyway. So much of, like, audio entertainment is, is really forced. You think? I think so. Um, and, you know, guess... that's, that's just working in radio. Like, I, I can kind of see, like, the things that, you know, the hosts of the shows that I produce, like, have to say. Mm. And then versus the things that they wish they could say. <laughs> and then you think about, um, like, the shock jock kind of guys really the only person who's ever like won at doing radio i think is art bell who did the coast to coast overnight conspiracy theory alien show like oh yeah i remember listening to that on road trips yeah that guy was cool like that that's what radio should be in my brain it's just like (laughs) i want a weird dude who's been trucking for 40 hours straight to call in and tell me about strange lights he saw like that's what i need that's human that's real that's what we need like part of it is like isn't that i mean it makes sense though that's what appeals to you in the same way that the kind of writing that you like appeals to you because it's i don't know i I think as an aggregate we can talk about how the general population likes the saccharine pap fed to them on tv and radio or whatever but if you go person by person like everyone's got quirks and niche interests and then i'll get smoothed out uh in like when you try to monetize anything so it's like podcasts were really i think for the most part are still but they were like just wild west crazy shit similar to like early internet uh like 10 years ago like compared to the internet of like 2000 or 1998 because it's like you had to have a passion to do it because of the technical gaps they had to overcome to create it and there was no known market for it, and there's no way to monetize it. Like, now that podcasting is trying to figure out, or, like, making some inroads on monetization, like, through Spotify and, uh, like, auto-swapping out advertisements or whatever, like, now you're just going to see it's just another medium for shit that you would just put on TV anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but now it's audio. As opposed to, yeah, like, there's this Blink-182 podcast where people... The two hosts just talk about every Blink One Eighty Two song, and each episode's like three hours long. Oh my god! Like that's not. <laughs> like they'll get like guests on and stuff, but I forget what it's called. But like, we're not going to have stuff like that in like ten years, I think, because it's not going to be. I don't know. Maybe we will. I hope we do. But I feel the same way about books. Like the books that are in the Barnes and Noble shelf, you know, bestsellers stuff, or the or the Amazon uh, recommended top sellers or whatever. Like it's. It's actually getting more transparent with Amazon because I think they're not, um, like if you look up the, because I've done this before for other reasons, but if you look up the the best Amazon sellers of 2018 or something, like they just put the kids' books right in with the crappy literary fiction and like the mm. genre book. Like it's really transparent where they're not trying to curate it like, oh, these are the best-selling adult books. These are the best-selling like books with artistic merit like this is just the crap that people bought like it's the da vinci code it's this kid's book it's the bible it's whatever yeah Uh, (laughs) like and i kind of i like that seeing that in a sense because if you go into barnes and noble it's already curated so it's like double fake i guess Mm -hmm. it's like here's what's popular but also what we think should be even more popular (laughs) makes sense so like if you're just playing a numbers game and you put out a book that you think will appeal to the broadest number of people. Like this isn't an original thought, but it's why we care about independent writing and stuff. It's because like, I would rather write a book that the majority of people don't 
care about or aren't interested in, if the people who do care about it take something meaningful away from it or get inspired from it. And I feel the same way about music. Like, I don't, I realize that almost all the music I listen to anymore is independent, small label, you know, bands that are only around for a couple of years and they break up or local acts or something like that. Like, and it feels natural for me for that to be true for books <laughs> because that's what appeals. That's what speaks to me more. Yeah. I, I think that I agree with all of that. <laughs> yeah. It feels like I could probably, <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that, but like podcasting plays into that. Like, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I'll, I'll go so far as to call it art and you can quote tweet me on that and just make sure you keep the link to the podcast and you're dunk on me. No, I mean, it's fine. Like, Cause you're like, you're investing, like that's what it is. There are the, the country's like 350 million people. None of them are going to care about this episode except for like maybe 15 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had some, my number's around 20 per episode, but yeah, you're well, right. Okay, sorry, I misspoke. I, I didn't mean to. <laughs> and then there's like maybe six people who might listen because of me. Um, but I'd rather those six people be engaged and I mean, not that I think I'm saying anything super exciting, but I don't know. <laughs> they might like my writing or something like that means a lot more to me than just, Oh, someone turned on the radio and listened to whatever was on because they had to go to the gas station. Yeah. One of the things that this reminds me of is there is a podcaster, magician writer guy who i used to listen to a couple podcasts he was on and he wrote a bunch of books and self-published them and eventually got to the point where he was making decent money off of the books he was writing and kind of learned how to game the amazon system and leveraged his uh popularity with other mediums and stuff and ended up writing a couple articles on like how to make it as a uh, self-published author and I read a couple other articles like that, and I read them about music because I used to make music and all that stuff. And really, they all read the same way. They all could be about any product. Like how yeah. to make it as a CBD oil salesman would basically be the same thing. Yeah. Get your beta testers. Get your blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think the disdain that you and I probably share with that sort of thing is the reason why um the idea of being a full-time writer isn't like at the forefront of our goals yeah that's a really great point actually yeah you put it that way um yeah i mean because i think it that's a really great point because if you i mean it's tougher to say i think we need to split out in our brains like this sort of classic canonical idea we have of like publishing where an author comes up with a great book and it sort of goes untouched into the publisher's hands and then they distribute it to people and they enjoy it and that's sort of like this myth of a pure novel that's like just so good that everyone has to read it um but then with self-publishing it becomes really transparent quickly where you're like the job becomes how to modify the art itself um to to generate the revenue like uh i don't know if you listen to joe balecki uh, no you're joe. <laughs> the other joe joe cam yeah uh, Some, uh, sometimes uh, yeah uh podcast he like ripped into chuck palinuk's book about writing because he's like yeah it's just a book about how he uses these plot hooks and tropes and pacing to write a book that will engage somebody and they will spend money on it like that transactional nature when it encroaches on your art I think it's reasonable to feel weird about it. I mean, there's, I think people are always talking about that, but like what it means in writing to try to do certain things or engage in certain things. And it's, I feel like the negative reaction comes from this idea of, well, now you're playing by someone else's rules in order to generate revenue for yourself. And it's easy for me to be on my high horse and say, I don't care about generating revenue because I have a job, but like, you know, like yeah it's a privileged place to be in like it's and i'm sure things would be different if i was like my only way out of here is to is to write really great poems and win some sort of poetry prize and like a lot of people are operating that way you can find it really easily on twitter where they're like i don't have a job i'm disabled i'm a minority like stuff hasn't worked out for me it won't it will continue to not work out for me i can write poems though 
and poetry prizes are a way for me to get money to survive. And like, I totally understand that hustle. And I'm frustrated that it's so unnecessarily hard <laughs> for those people. Yeah. Like I briefly looked into how awards work for poetry books because I didn't know anything about it. And it quickly became really transparent where they're like the majority of the awards cost like hundreds of dollars to enter and you have to send 10 copies of your book, blah, blah, blah. And then others, they're like, they don't even have a submission process, even for publishers. They just have like agents in the field who will nominate people for like a $50,000 prize. Like it, it's so geared to not reward <laughs> people who deserve it. I think. Yeah. It's just money laundering. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah that's this whole Hillary Clinton book that people are talking about, right? Like it's, they make a book so a political action committee can buy 8,000 copies to give to donors at a luncheon and then that counts to your sales and then you become a New York Times bestseller and then everyone just fucking pulps the book because no one gives a shit. Mm -hmm. That sucks. Like, that's what you're competing with. And so I think like it, it is frustrating because if you're not that cynical and you're like, well, I still think I could sell a couple thousand copies of my book. If I work really hard and I work with a publicist and then we do a PR campaign and I do interviews and I get on local NPR affiliate and blah, 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 blah. Maybe I'll sell some books. And it's like, I think there's like this valley you can fall into where you're trying to compete with a machine that you will never be able to compete with. And in the process you can compromise some of your morals or ethics. And then you, it's just like lose, lose. <laughs> like you tried selling out and you were never going to be able to sell out. And now you just kind of got fucked from both sides. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's why people talk in, in our ecosystem a lot of shit about agents. But what I wouldn't give for an agent who, like, just takes the weird stuff I write and says, yeah, I can, I can find a home for that. And then I just don't have to worry about it. And they can take 15% yeah. or whatever. Like, oh, man, what I wouldn't give for that. <laughs> I get it. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a lot with editors too, right? Like it'd be great to have some, like a Gordon Lish or someone like a, who you just can trust sending your work to and they'll make it better. And like, they'll work with you and you don't have to worry about your own fucking typos. Like, because we moved to the gig economy so hard, like, I don't know, like uh, you have to do everything yourself. Like everyone's just putting more and more onto the creative, like in bands, I think you see this a lot more. Like if you're on a small label, I think this is true for small presses. Like, I don't like, uh, like I don't want to talk shit, but like soft school, like they're a cool press. They put a lot of great books. They sell out, you know, thousands of books and they, they have good like galley campaigns and they get like Sam got a review in the Washington post. Like he got like a two line note or something like that. Like, which is great. Like soft school is, soft school is engineering this for him, but he also like had to, he was planning on renting his own fucking car to go on a book tour, like to New York city. Like, the majority of presses I think are moving to the point where like more and more is being put on the author. And this is just because of the economy of things. Like I don't, I don't, I don't blame the editors or whatever of Soskull for not throwing like $8,000 at Sam and booking him on a tour or whatever. But like, I don't know, maybe it's always been this way, but it feels like it's moving towards like, what are we willing to accept as having to be the people doing our own business as creatives, which is a shitty word creatives, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and like self-publishing, like that's all on you. And then, yeah, you have to sort of try to gamify it. And I don't know. Like, so yeah, it's, it's again, it's like in my brain is this like Valley. It's like, yeah, you can, it'd be great to have an agent to do all this stuff for you, but the process to get that agent. And then in 10 years, what agents will do and what they won't do, I'm sure will change. And so probably in 10 years, like having an agent, will mean just as much as like, you know, having a publisher that just puts your book on Amazon for you and then never does anything else. Like, yeah. Well, having an agent, but then you have to write your own emails to. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't really even want an agent. I want an AI that will scan through Duotrope and submit my books for me. Like, that's what I want. I, I want it. I want an AI who will, that will write query letters and find good homes and just go. Yeah. So if someone wants to code that, I would pay a decent subscription fee for that. Because of back patio stuff, we had to get to we had to write um, like book synopses and like blurbs and stuff. 
I was envisioning having a thing where it's like a template. Yeah, you just plug in like a couple adjectives and a couple plot points, and then it just generates the back of the book summary for you. Mm. Giacomo Pope wrote a rejection generator based on a bunch of rejections that I'd gotten and I sent to, to him, and he like chopped them up. It was really funny. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. Like it's, but then, but that's not sufficient. Like sending stuff to Duotrope is only going to get you like a book on Metatron or something. Like all real book deals that anyone cares about is just because someone knew someone. Mm-hmm. Someone to blah blah blah. I don't know. I'm I'm feeling really cynical about it. Yeah, but I'm not. But that's. But I I feel like I'm allowed to. I don't feel like I'm allowed to get really cynical about it because I am able to be detached enough to not feel upset that I'm not selling a hundred books a month or something. Like I think it's fine. Whatever happens to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's definitely people whose writing I love who. I mean, you said it, who are hustling really, really, really hard. Yeah. And I like it. That's a trait that I admire. But, like, I think about it for 15 minutes. I scan submittable, and I just kind of curl up into a ball and just say, oh, man, I just want to write my novel about snuff films. And then I do, and, like, hopefully somebody wants it. But if not, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I'll just, like, put the, the Google Drive link on my Patreon and say, okay, anybody who wants to give me 10 bucks a month can get that. And just kind of sit and hope yeah i mean it's it's it sucks if you like just zooming out enough because it's 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 sad to think about like what schemes we come up with to try to make like 500 dollars from our books you know yeah and there are people making million dollar advances to sell some just fucking garbage like it's the the divide is so extreme that and and because of my privilege and like being able just to have a, a job that sustains me and like a supportive family and stuff like i don't need to treat this game super seriously and so i can feel like the best i can do is be a member of the community and work with people out of like a sense of passion and interest. Like I was just talking today to some people about like, yeah, we should do like some chat books. This is how much it would cost to print each one. We could just like sell them at cost. I don't even care if we lose like 10 bucks per run, like fuck it. Like it's more valuable to, I think, create something that people would care about than try to like monetize it. But that's cause I'm like lucky enough to be in a position where I can do that. But I feel like even if I wasn't, it's hard, I don't know. I can't really articulate this too well, but it's hard to think about like when you're competing with all these things in place, like you either have to try to write American Dirt 2 or write books and that you love and you never expect to make money off of. Like, I don't think there's much of an in-between. I think, yeah, I, again, I'm just preaching to the choir here. Like, I think everyone you've had on your show and, and you feel the same way. Like, we're doing it out of the love for it and the enthusiasm to make something unique and meaningful to us and like money would be a benefit yeah. secondary benefit or something well i think we'll get universal basic income probably <laughs> before the end of our lives so i think we'll probably end That's up it. just being okay yeah yeah it's funny i, I remember i was free where i read this uh but in norway i probably read it in one of the Knossgard books maybe this book of letters to the Swedish author in Norway. I think if you get a book published and the government agrees to buy like 10,000 copies to distribute to all the libraries in Norway. So I'm sure it makes it harder to publish a book, but like that as a form of universal basic income or like arts grants in Canada. Like if you think about all the, I mean, you, you might not, but, Anyone who was like a stupid hipster in the mid 2000s loved a lot of music that was funded by the Canadian Arts Council, like the Unicorns and Arcade Fire and hmm. all these other Canadian bands that got really popular were critically acclaimed. Like they recorded on a government subsidized budget. <laughs> you know, like even that, I would settle for that. Like, like we don't even have that. <laughs> kind of just fucking government grant system like let alone just a check for the bank or whatever but like i don't know we're so fucked (laughs) (laughs) oh man 
and that's an hour that's good that's a good place to end yeah (laughs) oh man that went quick um (laughs) yeah i love when it goes quick those are my favorite episodes to do um i end these as always with um basically giving you the last word so if you want to promo anything that you've done or anything that you think other people should read or listen to or watch or a quick uh point by point of your political manifesto here is the place for it (laughs) uh i don't really have too much to plug um you can catch me on twitter is that what people say catch me um, I don't, I don't yeah. talk to people. I love Twitter. Burn Poems is on Clash, right? Yes, okay. Clash books. There's a bunch of other great books on Clash. So um, many great books on Clash. I think I think Clash has published most of the authors I've had on. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Clash is cool. Um, they think. Uh, uh, I'm trying to do some like zines and stuff online to sort of fill this droll of um, doldrums in the quarantine. Um, and I'm working with Kevin on Back Patio Press. Um, so we're putting out some books later this year uh, by some really cool authors. Um, so Neil Clark does uh, flash fiction. And uh, so he'll be putting out his book called Time Wow. It's like a bunch of really short micros about time and space and stuff. It's really cool. Hmm. Um, TJ Larkey, it's like this um, sort of Sam Pink style, like stream of conscious day-to-day life book. Um, and we're putting out Not a Numbskull by No Glycon, who is this very mysterious um, figure who was sort of on the periphery of Altlit way back when. And Numbskull was originally supposed to come out in like 2014 from a couple different presses. I think it was like a, a civil coping mechanisms finalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to go on another press that folded. So I'm hoping it's not cursed and that will actually, I mean, we were going to put it out this year and then the pandemic hit, so maybe it is, but I'm really excited about it. It's a really cool book. Um, it's uh, yeah. So we're thinking all those are probably going to come out in October. We're going to do like a book bundle. Um, so I would encourage everyone to check those out. We're just trying to make cool books and yeah, the barn poems. Awesome. And everyone else I've mentioned all the cool names and our friends. In this podcast, Writing the Rapids, it's a great podcast. You keep, listen to keep it. listening to it. Yeah. <laughs> this one's called Barn Poem 13, and it has four parts. One, never-ending cemetery with tiny barns instead of headstones. At night, you might see one of the barns hosts a small, shining light. Two. Barn with no doors, trapped in a barn box. Infinite funeral upon the hay. Three. Underneath the mountains, lurk five million barns and inside each barn is five million smaller barns four i open the barn and it is full of snakes Uh, all right this one uh is called uh, barn poem 20. Barnyard with no fence. Where does it end? Fuck, man. I don't know. Probably at the next barn. Ha ha. Fuck. Endless barnyards. And, uh, this one is called Barn Poem 33. Thinking about our beautiful, shining future, humanity in repose, tranquil and serene. Oh, beautiful for halcyon barns, barn to shining barn, 
the intercontinental barnway, the transatlantic barn line, the great barn of China, the great barrier barn, the space shuttle, but like it's a barn. Hell yeah, dude. That's beautiful.